0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good afternoon. My name is Joe Palladino. I'm the co-curator of the CWC's Beatles Revolution Series. And I thought it was great to finish this series with Yellow Submarine. Today's film has a sort of culmination of all the Beatle influences of art Music, animation, humor, comedy, and a little poke at pop culture. The film, made in 1968, borrowed a lot of the crew from the Saturday morning TV show, for those who remember the, the morning TV show, and then with Heinz Edelman's art direction, brought a pop sensibility to it and a sense of color, a sense of uh, pizzazz that I think still makes it a vibrant and kind of mind-blowing film even today. You know, and, oh, sure. and Today is our guest, and we have the treat of the creative team behind a recent publication of the yellow submarine graphic novel bill morrison writer artist nathan kane colorist uh, together they mm-hmm. have been mm-hmm. together they have produced hundreds and hundreds of simpson's comics and, uh, that's safe to say. That's safe to say. Yeah, I think. it's between five and 600, I think, yeah? at this point. Yeah. And their Bongo booth is one of the destination spots, I think, for Comic-Con for the last couple of decades. You know, yeah. and everyone stops off
1: there. That's what we hear. Yeah. It's, it's our one destination. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's well, a destination for yeah. a lot of attendees, yeah.
0: But I'd like to give a warm Pollock welcome to Bill Morrison and Nathan King. Thank you. Thank you. So I wanted to set the stage a little bit and just get some background on you guys and talk about uh, sort of where you came into different things. And Bill, in the 80s, we would talk about a little bit about your work with uh, the Disney promotional stuff and posters sure. for Jungle Book and Lady and the Tramp and Little Mermaid and what it was like to bring to beloved characters your style to it.
1: Uh, for me at that time, especially, you know, I was sort of a young illustrator starting out. Uh, beginning my career and you know to get to work with those iconic characters was you know it's one of those things where you sort of pinch yourself because you wonder if you're dreaming because it doesn't seem like something when I think of Mickey Mouse and Bambi and uh, some of those classic characters because I did posters for re-releases of those films um, I wasn't sure that that I should be entrusted with those characters, I didn't think I was really seasoned enough. Um, but I did, you know, I, I got this assignment. Was it sort of frightening and, thing
0: to take on in some ways? It like...
1: was a little bit, especially the first the first time I did Mickey Mouse. Mm-hmm. I did a poster for a Mickey featurette called "The Prince and the Pauper," mm-hmm. and that was, you know, just sort of uh, staggering. You know, the responsibility. I felt the weight of the responsibility. You know. Uh, because I just grew up with Mickey and, right. you know, he was and so got that important. large
0: fan base that's kind of looking at, you know, what are sure. you doing with this? Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah.
0: And Nathan, when you were starting off, you started off through, uh, we were talking a little bit about Malibu Comics, which was kind of like trying to fly in the face of, of DC and Marvel in a way, or just grow. You know, that...
2: Well, sure. They, they, were, they were a small uh, indie publisher, I guess, that did a lot of uh, licensed things like Planet of the Apes. They were the original um, company that published... Um, Men in Black, you know things like that that kind of became the big the big movie. So they had some properties, um, but I came in at the 90s at the beginning of kind of what we call like the digital color uh, revolution. Because before the 90s, everybody did color with it was done at the print you know at the printer with cutting liths and things like that. And so a colorist for for comics was basically somebody who just had like a little uh, like Xerox of the art and he would just color it with these like Dr. Martin dyes, and then he would see what or he or she, because actually Marie Severn was a very famous colorist, yeah. she'd, uh, um, they'd call out what these things are, so they'd go to the printer, the printer would cut the ruby list, which is this kind of opaque screen that they would put over things. That's why when you see a lot of old comics... Uh, the uh, the colors are out of register and everything, because it really was just kind of like like a trade thing that these guys were doing.
1: And the printers had to interpret sure. the, the color guides yeah. and try to match what they had done, and they weren't always successful.
2: So when computers came out, it changed everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was lucky enough to be on the forefront of getting in on this. So, like, Image Comics came out in the 90s. They were a big... Uh, big uh, proponent of this digital coloring and so everyone was kind of getting on that bandwagon at the same time so I got lucky enough to be able to learn my craft then and there um, so that's yeah i that, that all started start with Malibu
0: Great. and then from animation you were doing uh, Clerks animated shows oh yeah I
2: did uh, the, it, was a, it was like Kevin Smith uh, has a, a couple of movies Clerks um, and there was an animated show at Miramax based upon that and I was kind of juggling some Bongo responsibilities at the same time I was working on some background color for Clerks. And I had the opportunity to either come work full-time for Bongo or stay and work on Clerks, because at that point I had just been doing like intern stuff for them. And I chose Bongo. Uh, clerks lasted for like six episodes. I think they, I think <laughs> they aired two of them before yeah. they pulled it. <laughs> so uh, I think I made the right choice. Twenty plus years later,
0: yeah. it had its DVD life, but maybe not its air life. Yeah. Well, yeah, as the yeah. cartoon
2: series, psh, <laughs> no, nothing. The two episodes. I think Paul Dini actually wrote some of that. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Our good pal Paul.
0: And Bill, so you started with the Simpsons and imprint uh, very early, and can you tell me a little about that? And then the growth of, and the start of Bongo Comics.
1: Yeah, well, I, I was uh, sort of recruited to work on all the early 90s Simpsons merchandise. Mm-hmm. Um, so pretty much everything that a lot of you owned. Um, some of you weren't even born yet, <laughs> but um, those of you who are a little bit older, um, a lot of that stuff that was the stuff of Simpsons mania back in the early 90s, I was one of the handful of artists who did the artwork for that. Uh, And I was working for 20th Century Fox in their... uh, They called it licensing and merchandising, but it's consumer products is the word they use today to refer to that department. And um, so I was was just working there doing all kinds of stuff during the day, and then because Matt Groening, the creator of The Simpsons, retained all the publishing rights for The Simpsons, he was able to control everything that was... um, that fell under that umbrella of publishing. So books, uh, there was a Simpsons Magazine, calendars, anything that was sort of printed material, he was doing on his own, so I started uh, doing work for him on a freelance basis. Um, and so I, I sort of was at the right time, at the, right, at the right, in the right place at the right time, when uh, we started doing comics in the Simpsons Illustrated Magazine. Mm-hmm. So, I did the very first Simpsons comic strip, which was a Krusty the Clown comic that somebody had written. And I, you know, growing up, I always dreamed of being a comic book artist. So, that was one of those, another one of those pinch me moments, yeah, you know, yeah, just yeah, a yeah, dream dream come true. Yeah. And uh, so, I contacted the editor and I, I said, hey, for the second issue, you know, I really had a great time doing that comic strip. So if you've got another one, if you've got another script, I would love to be considered. And he said, well, actually, we uh, you know we want to have comics in every issue, but we're kind of behind on the second issue, and we don't have anything written yet. Oh. So he said, if you want to write something, then you can draw it." Mm-hmm. And I said, very coolly and calmly, I said, oh well, that that would be fine." <laughs> um, and I hung up the phone and I just went, oh my God. What have you
0: done? Yeah. I've never <laughs> written anything.
1: How, how do I do this? Uh, I didn't even know how to type at the time. Yeah. So I remember... And there was no <laughs> choice but
0: typing at the time.
1: Yeah. I remember I started thinking, you know, how do I come up with a story? And I thought about something I did when I was a kid that was funny, just a funny anecdote. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I can easily turn myself into Bart and I can turn my dad into Homer And so I did that. I wrote it all out longhand, and uh, my wife typed it up for me so I didn't look like an idiot too much. And uh, they accepted it. So from that point on, I was writing and drawing the comics in the magazine. And then we did an issue of the magazine that was all comics. It was a special annual issue. And that sold super well, uh, to the point where Matt, thought, well, I, I think we can sustain a company putting out comics because people seem to like The Simpsons in comic form. So let's let's do this full time. So uh I was brought on as art director, but I was also drawing and writing. And uh after the first year the editor, Steve Vance left and they made me the editor.
0: And Steve Anst now does all those great mystery science theater posters. Yeah, Steve's that.
1: a great yeah. illustrator and a, and a great writer. It yeah. Uh, yeah. So was an
0: amazing team that went through a lot it of was. comics. Yeah, yeah
1: okay. the, the, especially that first year. Um, we were always behind, mm-hmm. much like the animators who worked on Yellow Submarine. We, you know, we didn't have a lot of time to produce what we were working on. And uh, I remember... Uh, Sometimes I would bring my sleeping bag over to Steve's studio, mm-hmm. and just sleep on the floor so that we could, you know, get up in the morning and and kind of hit the ground running and and get the job done. Uh. So yeah, it was it was a, an intense year, a lot of fun. And then uh, Nathan, you came on, I think, in the second year. In '94, Talent tell, tell yeah. in '94, yeah.
0: And you'd come from coloring in Malibu. You were telling me the story where they had coloring teams that were. 24 hours, and you'd take parts of that. Oh yeah, yeah. Day. I started
2: off on the graveyard shift where we, you would work from 11 at night until um, uh, until 8 in the morning. So strange, you know. A lot of people would go to like the the gym at their lunch hour. So you're at the gym at 3 in the morning. It was it was really it was really weird. It was also just weird to be around at a time. Um, you know, you talk about pulling these all nighters or taking sleeping bags. It's, that's a young man's game. It's a young person's game. Because now, if I have to pull all night, I can't
0: do it. It's like, you got to find somebody yeah. 20 years younger. I don't
1: even know where my sleeping bag yeah. is. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and this, I, I have read that uh, it was 11 months of work for me.
1: Uh, yeah.
0: Concept to you know, in its release. It's an incredibly short amount of time for animation. Yeah,
1: that's insane for an animated feature. Yeah, it's really unheard of. And that's
2: kind of why they say a lot of it's disjointed, because they just had teams working on scenes, and and Heinz was kind of overseeing everything. Mm -hmm. And, uh, um, yeah, it just sounds crazy from the the anecdotes that that I've heard.
1: They didn't even have a full script when they started production on the animation. So... A lot of the the musical numbers that you saw, I'm not sure exactly which ones, but that's what they started on because they didn't need a script for it. They knew they were doing All You Need Is Love or whatever it was, so they just animated, basically like doing a music video.
2: Right yeah um, well, they knew they were getting four original songs from the Beatles for this, right, but the Beatles were not fans of this movie in the in the process of making it. They just thought it was a contractual thing. they didn't want to deal with it. they thought it was going to be low budget mm-hmm. um, they, they didn't care for it uh, they, they because King Features, who did the Beatles cartoon, was doing it, they weren't fans of that at all. they thought it was going to be more of the same um, so even for the animators. They couldn't get interest from the Beatles, who would show up, I think, like twice in, in the 11th month period. Um, they didn't even know what songs. They, the Beatles weren't delivering these four extra songs. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was only towards, like, the 11th hour that when the Beatles started seeing returns, for, for, you know, or the, the, the d from it, the Russians, and they so. were like, oh, this is actually unique really and cool. different and kind of in the vibe of what we're about. Yeah. So they, they had an about face uh, with that. But... Uh, yeah I, I cannot imagine. Heinz Edelman said uh, it kind of ruined his health that yeah. year.
0: he, he, he just, it just it was he terrible. Said it took him years to recover. Yep. from it yep. Yeah. And they've got the jumping point of, of a song, you know, so they're adapting a song into a feature,
1: mm-hmm. which
0: seems an odd thing. And then you look at some of the, the writing team and Eric Siegel of Love Story is right. one of the writers on things. And as you guys are looking at from that opposite way, when you were looking at going from animated shorts. I know you weren't adapting them into the, the comic series, but what, is your, what are you looking at that, that world going from The Simpsons episodes to Simpsons comics? What are the kind of challenges, and what do you, how do you look at it differently, and what do you look at story-wise and different things?
1: Well, I think with The Simpsons and with Futurama, which we also did a comic book version of that series, um, once, once the animators and you know, Matt's team of writers have established the universe... Mm-hmm then it's, it's kind of easy just to, to go, oh, I remember that episode where, I remember I did a story once about Apu's 72-hour shift. Oh. And it was a reference. It was just like a throwaway yeah, reference a in an episode. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I thought, well, how about we get to see that? You know, let's see what happens when Apu has to work 72 hours straight. Um, so you pick up things from the show, and it, it, it was really great because we weren't adapting episodes. Right but we were trying to keep our stories within the same universe.
2: Yeah, definitely. I, I, th- I think that uh, one of the big misconceptions that we always had to uh, talk about was people thought these were just straight adaptations of episodes, and no, it was never that. And uh, um, even, even some people within the uh, the nucleus of what we were doing thought we were doing that, and it's like, no, that's, that's, not, that's not how we work. But everything fits in the same world, so anything that had happened in continuity on the television shows, you know, we dealt with. Um, Hard pressed to think of any
1: exact. Oh, like when Mont Flanders died.
2: Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you had to stop doing that.
1: Right. Um, so that re- it was reflected in the comics that Ned was no longer, no longer had a wife mm-hmm, for a while mm-hmm. until he did again. Yeah, but, yeah.
0: And you've got 20, 20 years of continuity or twenty thirty years of continuity to start thinking about and how to bring everything in.
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, you don't worry about that so much after about the fifteenth year. You're like, ah, alternate universe. It's all fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's whatever. It was a dream.
0: And. Uh, we'll shift over to the Beatles in a second, but one last uh, uh, Simpsons question. When it first hit, you know, TV, and there was the parents' reaction against, you know, it was like the eat my shorts sort of thing, Mm -hmm. you know, the mentality of it. And now when you go into a comic shop, you know, often there's the the Simpsons spinner right at the beginning, and it's a sort of way for parents to ease into a shop. And, you know, it's sort of become the, almost uh, the, you know, the walk-in drug of uh, that the Archies used to be. You mm-hmm. know? So students mm-hmm. will, and kids will come in that way. Um, can you tell me, I know because you've worked a lot with parents and kids that have come in and I've seen you guys at signings talking about, can you talk about that relationship and how it might have changed?
1: Well, I think anything that comes out that's radical and, and maybe a little bit dangerous, mm-hmm. um, yeah. it always loses its edge after a number of years. You know, once people embrace it and it becomes a, a, a cultural... Phenomenon, and people start to get older, and parents start to relax because they realize my kid's not turning into a juvenile delinquent yeah. from watching this show. Um, you know, then it becomes this thing that's you know attractive, and and like you say, it gets people into stores rather than keeping them out.
0: And it's similar, kind of in some ways, to the Beatles. You know, so you have the parents who are like, "What is this music?" And oh, yeah. sure, it's, it's coming short. through. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I will say when it comes to The Simpsons and the, as far as the longevity of The Simpsons, you know, when it came out, I was a single guy, young guy, it's like, what are all people getting all worked up about? It's all great. And then uh, I have an eight year old now, and, and we're like, oh, he wants to watch The Simpsons because he reads all the comics. And, and we do, when we make the comics, we do try and, um, but they're not written for kids, but they're written with kids in mind, you know. Um,
1: we know but, kids would get their hands on it. We know kids
2: it. are going to get their hands on it, and we also feel like, something that is kind of maybe a joke that's over their head or maybe even like harsher language or, or whatever, when it's, when it's on a video, it's gone in a second. But when it's written on a page, it's there. So if you have somebody, you know, even Bart saying like, you know, who the hell are you? It's there, you know, with the kid you know, so just staring at it. You don't need that. So, yeah, so my eight-year-old, we, we let him watch, read the comics, but um, he's, not, he's not really allowed to watch the show yet. Because I've tried it. Because I'm like, well, of course you can watch The Simpsons. And there'll be some language. And I'm like, okay, maybe not. Maybe you start not. squirming. You're, yeah, I start squirming. <laughs> it's just like, oh, there's the B word. or There's the, you know, there's something. And I'm just like, oh, boy.
0: And that seems to have changed over decades and decades. There's different flavors. You know, The Simpsons, some of the humor will become more adult during certain writers. And then it'll change. Sure, sure. Yeah.
1: yeah, it can change episode to episode. Yeah.
0: So uh, if we shifting to the graphic novel. Um, I understand, to paraphrase, it was almost 20 years ago today that it started. You know, and you started the book much earlier. Can yeah. you tell me about that? And I know, Nathan, you came in very early. Can you tell me about sure. its start and then coming back to Titan?
1: It was um, originally planned for the uh, 30th anniversary. Mm-hmm. And this was the late 90s, like 98, 99. And... The idea was it was going to be coming out on DVD for the first time, and uh, Dark Horse Comics uh, contacted me, and they said, we'd like you to adapt the film into a comic book form, into like a graphic novel. Originally, I think it was only going to be 48 pages, um, and the one that we actually did is 96 pages. Uh, But they said... um, you know, we'd like you to get going on this because we want to have this out when the DVD comes out. Mm-hmm. So what I didn't realize was that there was, they were still negotiating with Apple and um, I don't know what happened but the, the deal ended up falling through uh, but not before I got about 25 pages drawn. Um, I brought in Nathan to work on coloring and you colored... Like, I you colored know, about, about 10 or 11, yeah. Yeah, 10 or 11 pages. Um, So, but then, you know, the plug was pulled and, you know, I just had all these unpublished pages that didn't really mean anything to anybody because it wasn't a real thing yet. Um, But when the internet came along and things like Facebook and uh, places where I could post the artwork and, you know, just show people, I started, you know, just saying, Hey, this is a project that, Never it, got off the ground, never and a few Beatles fans out there. This is yeah, something that 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 might have been, and people started getting interested in it, and uh, there were a couple of articles, online articles written about it and um And then all these years later, it was you know the Apple was sort of ramping up for the fiftieth anniversary, mm-hmm. and they wanted to do a graphic novel, and they they were made aware of the stuff that I had done twenty years before. And so um we uh I met their licensing agent at Comic Con and um he said, I really love the stuff you're doing, we'd like you to do this. And uh, so suddenly it was it was on again and it was you know, it was with a different publisher, it was with Titan, which is a UK publishing company. But Nathan and I have worked with Titan for years because they're the licensee of the Simpsons oh, okay. in the UK. So they, they would take our material and do their version of it. Um So, yeah, suddenly it was like that thing that I thought was dead, you know, for 20 years suddenly was resurrected. And um, because of the the tight schedule, I used the original 25 pages and the cover, Um, but then I expanded on it and, and, uh, you know, brought it out to a full 96 pages.
0: Nathan, you sounded, uh, we talked about it briefly, you were very excited about getting in at the very beginning, because the Beatles were... Oh, yeah, it was, so
2: yeah, so. yeah. It, it, it really was, uh, um, it was a great uh, opportunity, and then when Bill told me he was doing it again, I, did you have me in mind even to finish this up, or did yeah. you went, because I basically offered before you could ask, I'm like, oh, hey, I'll do it.
1: No, I did, I thought, you know, it would be great to finish that dream.
2: I tell you the interesting thing um, about the reason I'm glad it never it never happened 20 years ago was we were working off of you had like a laser disc or something of the movie was that yeah. was that right
1: I borrowed a laser disc and I struck VHS copies off yeah it.
2: and so so any kind of reference that I had was just printed out fuzzy like, like fuzzy terrible you know and I didn't have a laser disc player or we didn't have copies of it to look at but because the DVD came out in '98 or whenever it was '98. Um, yeah. Now what we're doing, it, I throw the DVD in, and it's like, okay, let me. Th- this is what this this is happening in this scene, or anything. This is the first time I'd ever seen it on the big screen, so it was amazing to see all the colors and textures that I thought I knew, but they're even they're even more um, richer and and nuanced in here than than I had ever seen.
1: And I, I've looked at Nathan's original colors versus. You know, like the same page, but recolored 20 years later. Oh,
2: well, yeah, I did that, too, because yeah. of those original pages. I didn't have any copies of the work at all. So I went online and, like, Bill Morrison, Yellow Submarine page, and I found the stuff that I did. Oh, because I like,
1: sent them for an article. Yeah, 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 because so, yeah. so, yeah.
2: neither of us had any of the old files. So I grabbed those, and, at it, and I'm like, oh, okay, I see what I was doing here. You know, maybe but it was a lot flatter. Thing. I mean, you well, really brought in the,
1: the sure because the watercolor yeah, rendering and
2: yeah, I uh, didn't all. I didn't realize how it was colored because our reference was so terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, whenever you do a li- a work for a company that has like a licensed property, they basically send you a style guide. And the style guide will have color call outs for certain things, so like all the Beatles' colors in in the book are the same as what they used in the movie. Um, that just keeps everything consistent from whether it's toys or print or poster or, or whatever. So I was using those those call outs for those things, and you can you, know, you fudge in within reason a little bit depending on the scene and stuff like that um, but as, as far as the backgrounds, once I got the DVD, you see how how uh, I was coloring it 90s style, I guess, originally, because we just had our interpretation. We weren't trying so much to to mimic what, what we're seeing in the movie, mm-hmm. really capture the feel of the movie. So once I had the DVDs, I was able to see, oh, they colored this all with, like, these Dr. Martin's dyes. And and so I was able now to take what I had learned and just kind of manipulate the colors and do more brush work and make it more painterly and... Uh, not as comic booky because because mm-hmm. the only comic book that existed before this regular submarine was an old Gold Key theme from the '60s, which is just flat colors. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. and so, a, at that time, there's only there's only the four colors, right, that they can go to registers. Four color
2: process, yeah. so they didn't get a bunch yeah. of colors, but yeah,
1: yeah, but uh, very limited. Now, yeah. uh, before you move on yeah. to the next question, yeah. though, um, you were talking about the Simpsons comics and the fact that we weren't adapting mm-hmm. from. The actual you know episodes we were writing and creating our own episodes, but this was totally the opposite right. because um, you know I was taking the film that we all just saw yeah. and then trying to translate that into comic book form and I remember when they asked me originally uh, twenty years ago to do this project, my first reaction was joy, you know I just couldn 't believe I was again one of those moments where i can 't believe they're going to let me do this and then like reality set in and i thought well wait a minute i really love this movie and it's got music and animation and you know the voices and everything why wouldn't i just pop that in like if i wanted to enjoy this story why wouldn't i just pop it into my dvd player and watch it why would i you know why would I want a, a version that make, was inferior? Yeah, how do
0: you make it a different thing? Yeah, and I think that's you know that that seems must be the challenge. There. That was
1: the challenge. That became like the goal was you know how do I make this something that stands on its own? Mm-hmm. And uh, I sort of went back to when I was a kid and I had all these great black light posters on the wall in my bedroom, and you know all these great psychedelic designs. And I thought you know if I can make the pages look as much like those posters as possible. Then I'm, I'm utilizing the the um, the pros of print mm-hmm. and and graphic design mm-hmm. and doing things that the film couldn't do. You know, the film had to tell the story in the medium of film. I can now take that story and sort of present it. You know, using psychedelic graphic design and, and make yeah. it something different, but That's still great. the same.
0: Yeah, because we we included some. Uh... Some pictures from the... Uh, some pages from it. And I think for people who maybe have read Cox before, it's still a very different thing because it's not linear panels. And as you're talking about, it is sort of an explosion and then you'll move from space and time mm-hmm. within the same page. And then, uh, Nathan, I think with your colors, it was great because there's the vibrancy, but there's also seems to be like a... It leads you through those things too. So I think this is a challenge of, uh, you know, compressing the story down but at the same time bringing a different thing.
1: Yeah. And, you know, we did things like if you look at the Liverpool scene where the, the, the sub is following Ringo, um, that whole scene, I, I laid out the pages more traditionally Mm -hmm. so that it's kind of boring and dull. They're just like rectangular panels. Yeah. And then, and when Nathan colored them, they're very gray and, you know, desaturated. And then, but that's fitting. By for contrast, that, that, yeah. when you get to Pepperland, everything is yeah. an explosion of color. So, um, so we just use those things to, you know, kind of um, just signal the reader. You know, it 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 sort of gives you like an emotional. Um, it's not anything you think about when you're reading it, but you know, when you get to those Liverpool pages, you get a little depressed. You know, sure. it's a little sad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then when you get to Pepperland, it's more joyful. Yeah. Good, good. Yeah.
0: And for colors for you, that means it seems sort of thing.
2: Well, yeah, that's what you always try and work for as a colorist, because color is such a um, subliminal kind of thing. And so, my goal, and, I, and a lot of people's goal, is just to is just to guide the reader. You kind of have to set the mood, just, mm-hmm. just like in any kind of film or anything. So, you know, there, there's always opportunities to go bombastic, mm-hmm. um, but you can't be that way all the time and uh you have to really kind of you know even within a page, you have to be basically direct the eye and find a focal point and and also you have to really complement what the artist has, has has done for you know a lot a lot of times you know somebody will indicate there's probably not so much in yellow you know, submarine but in other things um they'll indicate like a secondary light source or something like that, and you gotta pay attention to that or they're they like highly rendered. Uh, uh, detail in the in the art, then you can 't be so detailed in the color that it just it just muddies it and, and messes with it, so yeah, I feel like coloring is a very kind of subliminal thing, and you do have to take a back seat uh, it 's a support role for sure
0: and certainly some pages where you see a, a background that might be sort of a soft wash, and then the starkness of the sea of holes. You know, oh, yeah, that so was my
2: favorite it? scene to color yeah. because I didn't have yeah. to do anything. Yeah. It's
0: white. And, it, wait, and then it's drastically, <laughs> you know, the, the characters pop out that much yeah, sure, more sure. within the sort of yeah. geometry of it. Yeah. Now, um, both of the 48 page and the, and the and the larger chance, was music ever an option? Were the songs ever a thing that you were able to you know think about
1: I don't remember in the in the original version the planned 48 pager I don't remember anybody saying you can't use lyrics yeah um but I just remember thinking I don't have space for that yeah you know I've got to I've got to tell the story and most of the songs don't tell the story they don't further the story so I remember just consciously consciously thinking oh it's too bad I'm going to have to cut out certain Mm -hmm. scenes that visually yeah are really exciting, um, but for for the new version, um, you know, I was I was definitely told we don't have the rights to use the lyrics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I don't know if it was a financial thing; it would have cost <laughs> a lot more money to to do it.
2: It reminds me. You talk about the, the the music moving the things along, or maybe it's just like a little break in the story. In in, in, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds," don't they go like, "Are you done?" When John is yeah. just like you done, <laughs> just go. It's got nothing to do with the story. It's just you know yeah. a break.
1: Yeah, the other guys are kind of <laughs> yeah. dismissive of his his indulgence.
0: And it seems like Lucy in the Sky, you've got um, you know you got references to Chagall and Peter Max and and uh, old uh, you know like um, old comic book artists from the Phantom and everything. So can mm-hmm. you talk about? Did you go back to? How did you decide what you wanted to pull in and what you didn't want to use at different times?
1: Well, you mentioned the, like the Phantom and uh, Buck Rogers was in there and a, a few others. Alex Raymond. And um, yeah. The reason those were in there is because King Features Syndicate produced the film ah. and they own those characters. Uh, okay. Um, and so naturally I'm a fan of all those characters so when I started drawing those scenes I did uh, use those. Um, at one point, I think we had to change the Phantom.
2: Well, no, it's funny. We had to change everybody for this because, yeah. because Titan, the publisher, was like, oh, well, we don't have the rights to Mandrake and, 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 and those characters, so can you, can you manipulate them? So, like, yeah, I changed them into something else. So when the book came out last, last year, we were talking to the, the publisher, the, the head of the company, and he's like, oh, yeah, I was talking to King Features. We could have we used those because yeah. they <laughs> own them all. So I'm like, oh, okay, oh, well. The sequel. When we do the sequel, we'll yeah. put him in there.
1: But if you look at in the in the book that uh, I do a little plug for the signing. There's a signing it's after the afterwards. Um, when you see the book, you'll see the Phantom, and he kind of looks like the Phantom, but Nathan we'll designed. I would say just Kahlo put a bullseye on. He his put head. like a bullseye on <laughs> his forehead, and yeah. So he, and his coloring is different.
0: Yeah. yeah. I was watching a little bit of help, and noticed on the piano there was you know. There's some DC comics and some Marvel comics in that. You know, sitting there seems always to be like a sort of reference of mm-hmm. of comics within the Beatles. You know, and different things that are happening. Oh yeah,
1: there's a Mad Magazine reference in Hard Days Night. Oh yeah, uh, one of the guys on the train is reading a Mad oh, paperback. That's right. Yeah.
2: Well, it's like the Paul McCartney album Venus and Mars. It's got Magneto and Titanium Man. All these songs from yeah, about the Marvels, Marvel comics. The Marvel hit, yeah yeah. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. And as you as you look at. Um, is there anything that you had to cut away that you that you would have liked to have brought back, or did you feel i mean are there any scenes that you had to there are some off?
1: scenes that that um didn't make the cut just mm-hmm. just because of space and um I'd love to do an expanded version mm-hmm. and uh put those back in, but um you know who knows maybe that'll happen in the future yeah. um, but they were you know they were things that weren't really moving the story no. weren't that important to the story. I mean, they, they were part of the story, but um, I had to make decisions like, well, you know, if we don't show this scene with the, um, you know, that elephant-looking monster that, that um, after the sea of science that falls in through the hatch. Mm-hmm. He's really um, ugly. That really, guy. really <laughs> ugly. <laughs> really gets all sad and cries. Um, yeah. 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 Um, you know, I thought if I don't have that scene you know it's not it's not going to destroy the story, so there were things like that 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 got cut out but yeah. but most of it's intact, and uh, most of the reviews um haven't noticed those things that are missing they you know they've referred to it as a very faithful adaptation yeah.
0: yeah it feels very faithful yeah and then you know also it feels very faithful because if you think about the film and it's sort of like talking about humor. You know, there's wordplay, there's sight gags, there's all these different things, and all the influences of humor at that time I think were probably, like, similar influences. Can you talk about some of the things that have impacted you you both in in humor?
1: Uh, Well, growing up, and, you know, uh, the Beatles were um, playing in my house constantly. I had uh, two older sisters and an older brother who were, like, at the right age for the Beatles. I was a little young, Um, but I remember seeing A Hard Day's Night at the drive-in uh, with with my older sisters. You know, my dad took us and my older brother. Um, my version of the Beatles was my parents bought me Alvin and the Chipmunks sing the Beatles hits, <laughs> and so while my siblings were playing the real thing, I had the Chipmunks version. Um, but I just remember loving their music. I remember, I remember that. Um, you know, Mad Magazine was a big thing growing up. The Batman TV show, which I didn't know was a comedy, right. when I was a kid, I found out later <laughs> yeah. as an adult that it was a comedy. Um, and
0: uh, they, then, uh, Adam West always said, "It's just he's going to play it as straight
1: as possible yeah. in some ways." And that was the brilliance of it. Yeah. You don't, know, it you so don't know what
2: camp is as a ten-year-old. Yeah, I, I had yeah. no
1: idea. Yeah. But you know, the Beatles, the Beatles picked up on on that with. Uh, you know, with Heart well, Hard Days Night and Help were uh before Batman, but that camp vibe w- was was sort of in the zeitgeist. Um puns were big, yeah. you know, there's a lot of puns in Yellow Submarine. I'm a born. A Liverpool lot of wordplay. Pooler, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 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 <laughs> um so so I grew up with that. I grew up with uh, Woody Allen and um, Mel Brooks, um Laugh In, mm-hmm. you know, if anybody saw Laugh In, that was full of Groaners and <laughs> Yeah, let's hear it for laugh laughing. laughing. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and then it gives you humor gives you that chance to sort of uh you know, poke at respectable things. Oh know, sure. From yeah. you know, mm-hmm. from the Simpsons the Beatles to mad, you know, they can take something and you have that chance to both poke at something and I think build your audience through it.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um there are certain points in the graphic novel just to keep the story moving where I had to add dialogue. Yeah. And that was fun because I actually got to write some new puns for I the Beatles. I saw the new jokes. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that are not in the film. And uh, I think I think I was successful because when Apple, when the people at Apple reviewed it, um, they weren't sure what, they, they knew that I had written new material, but they weren't sure what it was. Yeah. So they couldn't tell my bad jokes from the Beatles' bad original jokes. bad jokes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I tell the book, that I got the joke. It's a sitar day. You know, it's like, yeah. like oh my God, yeah. oh, that's so funny. You know? Well, it's,
1: it's, like... it, it's, it's still kind of hard, even on the big screen. Uh, it's kind of difficult to hear through the accents mm-hmm. sometimes because the actors, um, those weren't actually the Beatles' voices in case you missed the credits. Um, but they, they were doing sort of authentic Liverpool accents. Mm -hmm. And the Beatles didn't really have very thick accents. You know, they had more, um, I don't know, I don't know what you would call just like a standard British accent with maybe a tinge of that northern Liverpool Mm -hmm. kind of uh, twang to it. Um, But the actors were doing more kind of authentic accents and sometimes it's hard to hear.
2: Do you know the story Um, about the, the, the... The, the voiceover actors in this thing, um, the Beatles would would uh, when when they heard the movie, they're like, uh, John would come up and say, "Hey, you know, everybody else is great, but the John is terrible." Yeah. And then Paul would come up and say, "Everybody else is great, but the Paul doesn't sound like that." And then and then George, they all did that.
1: Yeah, none of them thought yeah, they, they sounded right, yeah, but exactly. they thought everyone else was yeah, spot he's on. He's
2: fine, but <laughs> you need to redo mine.
0: And then uh music, we talked a little bit earlier about music for you and, and the Beatles were a huge influence for you and you're a musician too. And can you talk a little about that? Well
2: it's funny, you you just your previous question about uh, you know, comedy and how do the Beatles relate to that and maybe the the Beatles influence on uh or the, the comedy influence on the Beatles, I love thinking about like the, the comedy influence that the Beatles have on comedy. And we're talking mm-hmm. about the Ruddles, which is kind of a if anybody doesn't know it's a it's a you're talking about um influences. For me, a lot of it was Monty Python. So which mm-hmm. is really that was, you know, that was the the English stuff and, and the the 60s stuff all kind of wrapped together. And um they did a, a uh, Eric Idle from Monty Python did a that a Ruddles uh group which is basically a parody, a documentary of the Beatles. And so from a music standpoint, they had this guy Neil Neil Innes, who um that's how I pronounce it, I don't know if that's right. But uh he would write these songs that were basically Beatles songs kind of turned sideways, and so I would listen to that, and this, I have just enough musical training where I would be like, oh, well, this is that same chord progression kind of turned on its side, and uh, the songs weren't like direct parodies at all, but, but you could hear what they were, you know, you could hear what song, like, oh, this is I Am The Walrus kind of...
1: Yeah, you could tell what the influence yeah, was. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: Exactly. And sometimes it's more obscure cuts, which is kind of fun. Or they would take two different Beatles songs, like, say, Mother Nature's Son and Dear Prudence, and they put them together in another song called uh, like, Let's Be Natural. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was, it was, it's really great stuff. So that, from a comedy standpoint, um, I love seeing the Beatles music uh, riffed upon for kind of humor effect.
0: Right. And I think those, the first two films, the Richard Lester films, I think they had... Uh, An end impact on a lot of people. There were a lot of British comedians that were in that, but I think you see yeah. you know, like oh, echoes sure. of it everywhere. Yeah,
2: and, and the Richard, you know, the first two Beatles films were great too because one of my huge influences growing up uh, was was the Monkeys too, mm-hmm. just because it was so Beatles-esque. And the fact that like in Help, they all like live in the same house together and everything. As a kid, I totally bought into that. Yeah. I'm just like, I'm going to have a band. We're all going to live together. We're going to yeah. have like fireman poles and everything. Of course, everything. if you
1: had a band, you would all <laughs> yeah. be in the same house. And Jeez. they're all in the same house in Yellow Submarine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 just
2: all live. It's going to be great.
1: And the Saturday
0: morning cartoon, I think they all live in the same house. Yeah. And Saturday morning cartoons, I miss. You know, I was like, that do not exist so much. But, you know, there was the Beatles. I think Jackson 5 had a... You know, a cartoon too and they all had like I know, think the Osmonds a lot of the, the same Osmonds, animators
1: yeah. I don't know if it was the same company but mm-hmm. a lot of the same animators who did this yeah and the Beatles animated series also worked on Jackson 5
0: uh-huh. yeah. and you could see maybe the, the influence of that on that as they started to look at colors exploding and different mm-hmm. things happening uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. yeah and Heinz uh, Edelman mm-hmm. yeah so his use of like typography as a character, so that you know in the in the cartoon uh, there was you know you would sing along with, and there would be the words on the screen. But mm-hmm. here, the words become this whole graphic design, and so and you you incorporated that a little bit too.
1: Yeah, and uh, Edelman was you know I and mean, he was he was not an animator. He didn't. Traditionally work in animation. He was a graphic designer,
2: and he wasn't involved in the in the
1: series. They brought him in for the right, movie, just correct? for the movie. Right, yeah, yeah, he wasn't yeah. in the series. And the series,
0: so. it's just really block prints of right. Version. Oh yeah, you know, read along, sing along, yeah,
1: yeah. But the, all you need is love number. You know, well where the, the words sequence. Just in all well,
0: together
2: now, with the number, with the numbers. I'm sorry. What's the one where they count to sixty? Oh, 64. Yeah, when yeah 64, I'm 64. It's phenomenal stuff. If you just look at, just freeze frame those things and look yeah. at like the ingenuity of
0: some. And they're the all designs. on the heat, so you yeah, only see them it's for it's crazy.
1: Just a split second,
0: yeah. and then yeah. you look at some of the things like the, uh, the hallways when they're first they're looking. They're gathering everybody, and there's the hallway, and then there's static. So there's a static thing, and then there's moving things. It seems like it must have had. Some impact on Terry Gilliam the way. Yeah. Gilliam for sure. Yeah. For sure.
1: Yeah. 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 yeah, you can really see the, the influence there. Um,
0: and it's a close kind of time that, when that's mm-hmm. happening. Yeah. yeah,
1: and I know that, um, uh, I know th- what I heard was that originally Al Brodax, who was the producer mm-hmm. from King Features, wanted to get the Pushpin Studio, which was a famous New York graphic design firm. Mm-hmm. to do the design for the film. Yeah. So he wanted um, um, Milton Glazer and Seymour Schwartz to, oh, well, to do that. Milton
2: Glaser was, was um, Ma- uh, Peter Max's mentor. Yeah, Peter oh, Max yeah. worked there. Yeah, okay. Peter
1: Max didn't have anything didn't, to yeah. do with the film. But you can see sort of But there of is a connection, yeah. yeah. yeah kind of um, <laughs> and I
2: think he was happy, though, to kind of hitch a star a little bit. Well, that's the wrong word, because he's a pretty big star. Yeah. But he was happy to take a little bit of...
1: That's what I heard. Juice, yeah. Yeah. Um, But anyway, yeah. Graphic design was, you know, probably. I mean, I can't think of a film before *Yellow Submarine* where graphic design was such an important part of the film. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I think it was brilliant to hire Edelman because, um, you know, he he didn't think like an animator. He wasn't he wasn't thinking in terms of. Um, like a Disney-style animated story on, on the screen. He was thinking in terms of the posters and the things that he designed for magazines. Mm. And so all of that went into the look of the, the film, which brings it back around to the graphic novel because, again, it's like, well, how do you, um, you know, translate what's on the film back into the printed page? It's yeah, almost that, like a full circle kind yeah, of Yeah, I'd thing. love to
0: hear a little bit more about that again, you know, just that idea of, like, how do you how do you take time and space you know you know in a film we've got the these time happens space happens but in a comic book or a comic page it all happens at once in some way can you talk a little bit about that
1: well um, when you're when you're either writing or uh, writing a script a comic script or interpreting a script that somebody else has written there's always stuff that happens in between the panels mm-hmm so when you're when you're drawing you're thinking about sort of leading the reader yeah. um, so you're you're showing what's essential and then you're leading the the reader into the next panel mm-hmm. or i mean we call it a panel, but it's sometimes it's just an image that's not bound by a box or anything right. um, but um one of the problems with with you know, translating the film is like uh, remember the scene where they get the motor fix, and then they they fly out of nowhere land, and suddenly you know they're somewhere again, mm-hmm. but then the ship starts going backwards. Right. Well, it's like, well, I can't show that in a static panel. I can't show the ship going backwards unless I have little scoochy motion lines, which I didn't want to do, so. I had to create dialogue there that explained to the reader that, oh no, we're going backwards. You know, somebody had to actually say that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you, just, you do things visually also to, to signal the reader that something's happening that isn't necessarily in the dialogue. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I, I think so much of uh, creating a comic page has to do with, it is a manipulation of time, with a perception of time. A lot of times the panel breaks... You know the gutter is a, is a is a, is a, is, a, is a beat, and uh, a lot of times the the person laying out the page can really you have to think about how the writer or how the reader is is reading to reading things, and you manipulate that. I mean I've seen single panel pages just like a splash page, but it's all done in a way that your eyes is going to read it, and you get a passage of time, and there's. Uh, Scott McCloud wrote a great book, that, understanding, that basically, comics. Yeah, yeah. understanding Comics, that basically mm-hmm. breaks down a lot of that. Um, and there's probably as many ways to do it as there are creators. Yeah. Um, but there's there's some ingenious ways. But yeah, I think for me, it's all in the manipulation of time mm-hmm. for uh, the reader.
0: Yeah, you look at those amazing, like, Windsor McKay pages, you know, where oh, sure. there's just yeah. so much to happen, you almost don't know where to start. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's,
1: uh... I, I grew up reading... So many comics that when I read that book, Understanding Comics, Mm -hmm. by then I was already a comic artist and writer, but I didn't necessarily know why I did certain things that I did. Some of it was instinctive, just from reading comics as a kid, Mm -hmm. and I just sort of knew what worked and what didn't work. Um, But I remember reading that book and going, "Oh, that's why I do that. That's why. Yeah, that's why that worked. Okay, there's there's like a a real psychology behind it that I wasn't." Mm -hmm really conscious of
0: there's even that that idea of you know the the more abstract the more simple like Charlie Brown is the most identifiable because he's just a circle mm-hmm. and where uh, it seemed like almost photorealistic animation seems just cold you mm-hmm. know and it seems like it has to be yeah yeah then you don't know why and yeah he, he kind of spelled those things out uh-huh. in beautiful mm-hmm. right yeah yeah um fandom has been a big thing that we've talked about over the series and uh, the Beatles fans and the history and the memory of the different things. Fandom, for you guys, it's like, uh, instead of, uh, if we think about Comic-Con, I don't know how much of the audience has been to Comic-Con, but could you talk a little bit about that world's sort of changed over the you know, last couple of decades and so, talk about the, the relationship fans and what, mm-hmm. what you
1: see. Um, well, I've been at Comic-Con since 1993 as a, as a professional and I remember back then we used to make jokes about how there weren't any women at Comic Con, yeah, yeah, yeah. so you can't make that joke anymore. And uh, there were also jokes about you know I took my com- wife comic fans was don't.
0: Surprise! There were so many women
1: there. Yeah, comic fans don't bathe, yeah. and they're they're nerds and geeks, and um, I mean some of that is still true, but um, <laughs> but but in a very minor way. I mean it's very mainstream. You know, mm-hmm. um, pop culture has just. Uh, exploded and and everybody's a fan of something. Yeah. It seems like whether it's movies or comics or TV shows. and When it comes to Comic Con, um, we've we've been fortunate that we're we've been allowed to work on things that are just embraced by a lot of people. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, me with Disney, the two of us with Simpsons and Yellow Submarine. Um, We've also both worked on Mad Magazine projects. And um, it's great because you, you, get to, you get a lot of feedback from people. Right. Um, I've worked on smaller projects where you kind of do it, you spend a lot of time, you put just as much energy and heart into it, and it goes out there, and then you hear crickets chirping yeah. and you know, tumbleweeds rolling by. And it's like, okay, I guess nobody noticed that. Um, but it's great with something like the Beatles and The Simpsons and these things that are just universally beloved by people, um, because you do get a lot of feedback, and sometimes it's it's not always positive. Um, what? Well, speaking for myself. <laughs> what? <laughs> um, but it's but it's good to know that people are are paying attention.
2: You know, I think fandom has changed in the last two decades. Social media has changed fandom so much um, which is funny because now you know it's great to be a fan and to speculate and 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 to uh, think about things or maybe put forth fan theories. but now it's so ubiquitous that even if you're a creator you got. You know, maybe there is a fan theory that, oh, I thought I did this thing on a left field, but I guess these people have figured it out already, or there's so much victory all out there. And there's so, much, there's so many people who are uh, reporters in the comic scene, or they have like comic websites and comic news. I'm amazed how somebody will just put out a theory that, oh, well, it's probably because of this is why they're doing that. And people just automatically accept it as or start commenting as if this oh yeah that's probably right this guy's probably right and I'm like just from the little bit of stuff that I know that you know from the companies I've worked at which is not you know disseminated uh for the public it's like no it's nine times out of ten it's wrong but (laughs) but people are just "Ah, believe what you want to believe so that's really I think affected things a lot for fandom because everybody wants to be in the know Mm -hmm. And I think everybody is also just quick to jump to anger these days when it comes to online stuff, especially. But it's like, no, it's just, just kind of relax. Just enjoy the product, really.
0: Okay. All right. Well, thank Thank you for coming today. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Sir. Thanks, Joe.